right, well, how are we? Um, this morning we heard from somebody who's been a pastor for over four decades, and tonight you're going to hear from somebody who this is their fourth sermon. So um, <laughs> I don't know if that should make you more nervous or me more nervous, but uh, it's always good to be back here uh, with the Wind Baptist Church family. Um, just through my time here this summer with the students and with the staff, just such a, the impact that it had on me is, uh, I can't really put it into words. So it's always good to be back here. And uh, I'm just excited to be able to share with you um, tonight. And thanks for having me back. But we'll be looking tonight at the uh, first 10 verses of Ephesians 2, but especially at verses 8 through 10. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can do that. Um, while you're doing that, I want to just explain a little bit about why this topic was one that I felt uh, really led to talk about. It was kind of born out of this, this struggle that I had going on inside myself. Um, really starting at the end of high school and going into the beginning of college. And, and that struggle was to answer the question, what does it really mean to be saved? And then after that, after I answered that one, well, based on that answer, am I really saved? And then based on that answer, uh, what should my life look like if I really am saved? Um, if I really am going to be a follower of Christ, what should be um, a marker for my life? What should be, how should, I, how should my life look? Um, so just a little bit about myself so that you can understand where I'm coming from with this. I've been in church my entire life. Um, my parents, who are here tonight, made sure that me and my brother were surrounded by the things of God and praise the Lord um, that they did. But that led me to making a decision early on when I was nine years old. And I went through the whole deal where I, I prayed the prayer and I went down front and I was baptized. And um, I believe that that decision was genuine because I really feel like the Holy Spirit was convicting me in that. Um, but... I had absolutely no idea what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Um, I knew and I recognized that it was something that I was supposed to do that I needed to do, uh, but I didn't have a clue what all it entailed. And I didn't understand that being a Christian and being a disciple can't be separated. And I, I, I had this kind of vague idea of what I thought that the gospel was, but outside of the fact that I knew that Jesus died for me, I didn't have any idea about how that applied to my life. Um, and how it was to affect the life that I was living. And because of that, there was just this confusion, um, like I mentioned. And I started dealing with this around my junior year and, and um, really just thinking about the grace of God and how it's supposed to affect my life. And uh, what I would do when I was in high school, I, was, I would always jump from one extreme to the other. And so I would start off saying, well, the grace of God has covered me, so it doesn't really matter what I do, and then I would get tired of that, so I'd move to trying to work my way into the approval of God, so to speak, which um, was pretty absurd of me to think that I could do that, but I was constantly confused, and it was just something that I had to deal with, um, and thankfully, uh, God used the doubt that I had and the confusion that I had to lead me to a better understanding of who He is and what He's done, and then consequently, what should mark my life uh, because of that, and so that's what I'm going to do my best to, uh, to share with you Tonight, So the title of the message is Believing and Becoming. And, um, and what I mean by believing and becoming is that um, as believers, if we claim to be followers and we claim to be disciples, um, then we should be in the process of becoming more like Him. Um, and so I'm going to do my best to look at both aspects, the believing side of things and then also the becoming side of things. So let's look at um, Ephesians 2, and uh, we'll start in verse 1, but the main points that I want to look at. We'll uh, start in verse 8. Ephesians 2. And you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And this is really where I want us to focus tonight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So uh, before, we, before we get into verses 8 through 10 and, and really start talking about salvation, um, I want us to see in the first few verses of the chapter really what our previous state was, because I believe that the only way that we're going to have a proper response to what goes on in verses 8 through 10 is if we understand what we were before verses 8 through 10. Because in order for the gospel to be what it is, in order for the gospel to be good news, there has to be some sort of bad news that makes the good news good. So the bad news is here in verse 1. It says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And by saying we, Paul is saying that every person who ever lived finds himself in this category apart from Christ. But, but think about the language that Paul uses there. He doesn't, he doesn't say that we were sick in our trespasses and sins, or he doesn't say we were paralyzed in our trespasses and sins. He says that we were literally dead. And it's not an accident, I don't think, that he uses the word dead because there's this, there's this helplessness that comes with that reality. There's absolutely nothing that a dead person can do on their own to not be dead anymore. So there has to be some sort of outside agent that acts upon us spiritually dead people to give us new life. And that is why the gospel is good news for us. Because God didn't leave us in our deadness, but in an outpouring of his love, sent his son so that we might have new life. And that's kind of the whole, the whole movement and flow of this passage. It moves from death to life, from slavery to sin, to freedom in Christ. And that's why the gospel is good news. So, in looking at verses 8 through 10, there are three primary points that I want us to see as we make our way through it. I'm not always good at, at having like these definitive points, but it just kind of worked out that way tonight. Um, but, but we have three points. We have the basis of salvation, the means by which we receive salvation, and then the goal of salvation. And we'll look at those more in depth as we go, but first I want us to look at the basis of salvation. And it's found in that first phrase of verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved. That's what I want us to look at for, for this first part. For it is by grace you have been saved. So the basis of salvation is grace. It's the foundation that, that everything else in the salvation process is laid upon. Now, for those of you like me who have grown up in church, um, grace is a word that is, is constantly thrown around. And, and what's dangerous about, about doing that is that we can say a word like grace and throw it around without even understanding really what it means or what it looks like. And, you know, we, we use definitions like unmerited favor or we use definitions like God giving us something that we don't deserve. And those are, those are true, but um, they're a little bit abstract and a little bit uh, vague. And if we aren't careful, 
Um, those can just become little cliches that we use instead of really understanding what grace means. So um, what I want us to understand and realize tonight is that first and foremost, grace is seen and revealed to us most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the incarnation of God's grace. He was God's grace in bodily form. John says in his gospel in, uh, in John 1.14 that Jesus was full of grace and truth. So in order for us to have a more robust understanding of grace, we have to understand that grace came as a person. Titus 2.11 is another verse that talks about it. It says that the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. So um, in other words, just the, like the Ryan Perkins version of that is when Jesus appeared, so did grace. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that God didn't show grace in the Old Testament, but it just means that Jesus revealed this grace in a way that had not been seen before because this grace brought with it the ability to save sinners. And it's in that embodiment of grace in Jesus Christ that we find that the wrath of God that's due for us as sinners is completely satisfied. And that's why we're using the term salvation because the grace of God that we see in Jesus is literally saving us from, from God's wrath. So in our former state, uh, that state that we talked about a little bit, the state of spiritual deadness where we were before Christ, we're completely deserving of God's judgment. And I don't want that, as we talk about grace, I don't want that to get lost um, in this conversation because God is 100% righteous, just like He's 100% loving and gracious. So if we remain in that spiritually dead state, then we're deserving of His wrath. But the good news the good news, the gospel, is that, praise God, he didn't leave us without a source of life. Because he was and is 100% righteous judge, and because he was and is 100% loving and gracious, in order for us to be saved, he had to do something that simultaneously put on display his righteousness and holiness, along with his love and his grace. Um, I love the way that John Stott, uh, in his book, The Cross of Christ, describes it. He says that God was unwilling to act in love at the expense of His holiness, or in holiness at the expense of His love. And so this is where Jesus, this is where that walking embodiment of God's grace comes on the scene and completely wrecks everything that the world had ever thought about God and about grace. And He continues to wreck what we think about God and about grace. Jesus received the judgment so that we could receive the pardon. That's, that's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is all about. For he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I think it can be said that God poured out his judgment and his wrath on Jesus so that he could pour out his love on us. And so, I don't know if, if that, talking about that brings you to a greater understanding of grace, but possibly the best gauge or the best read that we can use as to whether or not we have a proper understanding of grace as believers, is to answer the question, what is my, what's my default, what's my go-to reaction when I mess up? When I make a mistake, what do I think that God is thinking about me? Do we think that God is up in heaven just wagging his finger at us and just, just tolerating us and putting up with us like an annoyed or frustrated parent until the day that he calls us home? Because based on what we just read in that passage, it's completely bogus. 
Because he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If we are in him, like the verse says, if we are believers, we have that, that legal status of innocent in the eyes of the righteous judge because the righteousness of Jesus has been given to us in exchange for him taking our sins and our shortcomings on himself at the cross. That is good news. And we don't want to believe it that God could really think of us like that. Um, a couple of years ago, on the day of my high school graduation, we had all our family over to our house and um, before my graduation. And basically, they just came to our house, and they ate, and they said good stuff about me. Um, <laughs> stuff that I didn't even know, honestly. I was like, okay, that's good to know. Thank you. Uh, but it's weird thinking back on that because when people are saying something genuinely nice about us, genuinely complimenting us, what do we do? We look down. We can't look people in the eye. We can't make eye contact. Um, because there are these, these like deep, dark parts of ourselves that I think I can include, can include others in this. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but there are these deep, dark parts that are like, if they knew some of the thoughts that I've had, or if they knew what was going on in my heart, the room would be completely silent during say something good about Ryan time. I don't deserve for people to say nice things about me. That's our, that's our mindset. And um, I think that we, we get in that same mode in thinking about God. But what we're not realizing is that God knows everything that goes on in our hearts. And, and we may be able to put up a front and fool people around us, but God knows us better than we know ourselves, and He still loves us. Nothing drives out our shame like being fully known in the deepest, darkest recesses of our heart, yet being fully loved and fully delighted in. And it's so beyond reason, and it's so not how we operate as human beings, but this is the way that God looks at us as people saved by His grace. And if I'm being honest, I was just, I was completely blown away um, in studying for this message at just how small my idea of God's grace is. And I was so convicted by what I found in Scripture and I think that having a better understanding of His grace leads us to a greater sense of thankfulness and a greater sense of worship in us. But the main point that I want us to get from that uh, is that the grace of God, the basis for salvation, is seen most clearly and most powerfully and most perfectly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, the second thing I want us to see is the means by which we, we receive salvation. So um, look at what the next part of verse 8 says. For by grace you have been saved... Through faith. So the means by which we receive salvation is faith. And, and faith is another one of those words that's thrown around a lot in, uh, in Christian circles. But for a, a biblical definition of it, you can look at Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And the writer of Hebrews goes on in that passage to talk about people like, uh, people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, all these heroes of the faith who acted out what they believed. And, and we see that faith is this assurance and conviction of the believer that God is who he says he is. And um, we see in the Gospels as Jesus encounters people during his ministry and uh, as he goes about healing these people, uh, his healings were often accompanied by faith from the person who was being healed. Uh, just a couple examples. Luke 5, 20 says, uh, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Luke 7, 50 he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Luke 8, 48, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. And uh, Luke 18, 42, Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. 
And I could keep going and going with examples from the Gospels of how people were given healing because of their faith. And um, just as these people were given physical healing because of their faith, it can even go to another level with us because we're not just spiritually sick, as we talked about earlier. We are spiritually dead apart from Christ. So we're not just provided with some spiritual medicine by the gospel, but we're given new life by the gospel. So first, uh, just some characteristics of the faith that we're talking about. It's the assurance of the believer. Second, it's necessary for us to receive new life. And I love the description of faith that C.S. Lewis gives in his book, um, Mere Christianity. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even say the word faith in the description. But uh, if we listen carefully, I think that we can see some key points about it. He says, Salvation is the change from being confident about our own efforts to the state in which we despair of doing anything for ourselves and leave it to God. The sense in which a Christian leaves it to God is that he puts all his trust in Christ. Trust that Christ will somehow share with him the perfect human obedience which he carried out from his birth to crucifixion. That Christ will make the man more like himself and in a sense make good his deficiencies. So, in this definition, we see another characteristic of faith. We already mentioned that, that faith is the assurance of the believer, that it's necessary for us to be given new life. But something that Lewis said that, uh, that I think can be backed up biblically is that faith involves humility. Like Lewis said, when we experience the faith that's necessary for salvation, we move from being confident about our own abil abilities to the place where we realize that we're unable to do anything on our own. And we see this in the passage in that next phrase. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, referring to salvation, is not your own doing. It, again, referring to salvation, is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, so faith involves coming to this place where we realize that every attempt we could possibly make to attain salvation is going to be a complete and utter, utter failure. And the only hope that we have is in the gift that God has given us. What works is talking about here uh, are, are human efforts to achieve salvation. So in other words, trying to conform to a certain set of moral principles or rules that I believe are enough to save me. Um, it's the argument that you might hear from some people uh, who, if, if they were asked why they were a Christian, they would say, well, I, I think I'm a pretty good person. And what we get into when that is our mindset is a comparison game where I look at somebody else and say, well, they're going out and doing this, or, or they're going around and doing this. So compared to them, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Um, and when we look at other people as the standard, we will always be able to make ourselves feel better or feel worse than we really are, both of which are detrimental to our, to our growth as believers. But when I, say, when I see myself compared to an infinitely holy and an infinitely righteous God, Isaiah says that the very best things that I can do look like filthy rags in comparison. Because of that, because I can't do anything on my own, because God has designed salvation in such a way that it isn't works-based, it says in this passage that no one can boast. No one can boast. That's why faith in this passage involves humility. Because it recognizes that I haven't done anything to deserve salvation. It's solely based on the grace of God. And nothing that I've done allowed me to receive this gift. So no one can boast. Now why, why is it set up like this? I, personally, I think the reason that it's set up so that no one can boast is that God 
and God alone receives the glory from salvation. That's why faith involves humility, because it means that we recognize that our efforts are completely useless apart from God, and that the only way we're going to experience new life is through Him invading our lives and changing us from the inside out. So the main point about faith is that it's the means by which we receive salvation, and then kind of the, the little sub-points under that um, is that it's the assurance of the believer that Jesus is who He says He is, and that His work is sufficient. That it's necessary for us to have new life, and that faith requires humility in recognizing that our works are insufficient and acknowledging that Christ is our only hope. So, Grace is the basis of salvation. Faith is the means by which we receive salvation. And now we move to the third point, which is the goal of salvation. And it's what we find here in verse 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the goal of salvation is good works. And um, I'm going to explain that a little bit more in a minute. But in order to get there, um, we need to talk about this point of being God's workmanship. What is that talking about when it says we are God's workmanship? Um, just to illustrate it a little bit, me and my brother, we are, we're movie buffs. Like, um, we especially, we love going to the theater, and we love seeing movies. Um, and, and my brother even loves making movies, but um, we're just all around movie people. So, in fact, my, my Christmas present for my brother this year was a, a gift card to the movie theater that's close to our house. So, um, I'll let you judge for yourself whether or not that was a really heartfelt gift or whether he just forgot to get me something and have my dad pick up the card on the way home. Um, but regardless of that, and uh, it was the second one, by the way, but uh, regardless of that, we love movies. And, and since my brother has, has really gotten into creating videos and movies, um, I've seen like the, the intricacy and the care and, and the time that it takes to create even just like a little short three-minute video that he makes. So if you, if you take that to another level with like these, these epic films that directors make, good movies are really the creation of a master craftsman. And you can think of this with music or art or however you want to think about it, whatever visual uh, best suits you. But really, it takes a master to create a great piece of film or a great album or a great work of art. And that's kind of the idea of us being God's workmanship that He is constantly working in us and molding us and making us more and more, more and more into who He wants us to be. And He uses different circumstances in our lives, sometimes maybe allowing dark seasons and, and pain and difficulty to shape us and to mold us. Paul in Romans 9 compares us to clay and God to the potter, and that's kind of the, the image of, of molding and shaping that I want us to think about in being God's workmanship. But um, in looking at this, the question comes up, what are we being shaped into? What is God molding us into as believers in Him? And I think we can find that answer in a couple places. First of all, in Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And this verse is essential to the one before it. Um, and it's one that's often misused or used out of context, or however you want to say it. Um, but when it says before it, that all things work together for those who love God. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Um, it's not saying that everything is going to turn out how we would see as good, because when God is thinking about the good of, of the believer, He isn't thinking about us making more money or us having a nice house or anything like that. Um, but it's 
when God is thinking about the good of, belie- of the believer, he's thinking about us being conformed to the image of Jesus. And we see the same idea in the first chapter of Ephesians, um, just a little bit before the passage that we just looked at, in verses 3 and 4 when it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, yes, that's talking about being justified, um, like we talked about earlier, or having Christ's righteousness given to us because of what he did on the cross. But um, it's also talking about this process called sanctification that God uses to actually make us holy or to make us more like his son. And uh, it's important that I mention that we won't ever be fully holy. I don't know if that's a term or not, but we won't ever be fully holy until Christ's return. Um, so we're never going to come to a point where we don't sin, where we don't mess up, where we don't make mistakes. And so I don't want it to seem like I'm trying to push us to do some impossible task, but God has designed salvation in such a way that even though we're going to execute this thing imperfectly, that in a joint effort with the Holy Spirit, we can come to look more like Christ. Now, um, just as we're about to wrap up, uh, a little bit about good works being the goal of salvation. The verse says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And when I say good works, I'm really talking about what we do being motivated by who we are becoming, like we talked about at the beginning. And so just really quickly, I want to make a distinction between what we see in, uh, in verse 8, the first verse of this passage, and, and verse 10. The distinction, I think, is in the words that we see the, before the phrase, good works. So we're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. We see that, that as believers, God has prepared these good works for us to do, which is, which is where the confusion came in for me a couple years ago as I was uh, finishing up high school and getting ready for college. I, I thought that any time I did something that was a, a so-called like, good work, uh, that it was me attempting to, to gain salvation on my own. But what I wasn't realizing was that God has designed salvation in such a way that when I have seen His grace and love, I should give that same grace and love away to others. So the difference between good works before and after salvation is that after salvation, the good works are motivated by the grace that I've received. So this whole thing works together, and that's more than anything what I want us to get um, out of this passage tonight is that I want us to see that, that this grace that we've received and this faith that we have and the good works that we do as we, as we grow more and more into the image of Christ through, through sanctification, these things are all connected. Um, that's what I want us to see more than anything, is that you can't have one without the other. Salvation is by grace, through faith, and for good works. And um, I just pray tonight that we would just marvel a little bit at, at how God designed it, and that we would be able um, to experience each of these things in, in a real and a genuine way um, as we go from this place tonight. So let's pray as, we, as the band comes up. Father, we... Um, we just thank you for your grace that you've um, just lavished on us, God. And um, we just thank you for the faith that you've given us, God. And we thank you for this whole process of salvation. And God, I just pray that um, as, you, as you work on our hearts, that we would just be attentive to what the Holy Spirit is, uh, is saying to us. God, um, I just thank you for the gift of Jesus and that you allowed us to see grace through what he did. And uh, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.